I had a teacher in high school who was a major influence on my life. His name was Ray Vanderlaan. And what really influenced me the most from Mr. Vanderlaan was his passion. He was absolutely zealous about the Word of God. I remember him coming into the classroom and saying things like, Students, you know what it says in here? It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And he was so passionate about the word and ultimately who the word points to, namely Jesus Christ, that that passion became contagious to me and the other students. Some of us even traveled with him to Israel where his passion for the word and for the land and for the Lord became even more contagious. It really formed who I am to this day. I am still so passionate about the word, about preaching the word, about letting the word shape my life. And part of that was because I was discipled by Mr. Vanderlaan and his wholehearted passion for the word as well. I've noticed something over the last year or so in my own life, but also in the lives of many Christians, which is this. I believe there's pretty strong temptations right now in our culture to sway our heart's passions away from the word and away from the Lord onto the narratives of this world. And I think today's scripture is a wonderful way to realign our heart's passions, to be realigned with a passion and a zeal and a love for the word and for the Lord and for his church and for our mission in this world. So I want us to look at it together. It's a famous passage, Acts 2, verse 42 and following. It's, the, it's one of the main things we look at when we try to design what a church should be like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And it goes on from there, and it's become like a blueprint for what churches ought to look like. And over the years, as I've pictured Acts 2.42, as I've pictured the community that's described in it, I've often really pictured these little house churches, It's almost like a camera lens zoomed way in on living rooms in the first century where there are these early Christ followers talking about what the apostles taught, breaking bread of the Lord's Supper together, singing hymns. And I have the camera lens zoomed in on their living rooms, just marveling at the early house church movement that ended up changing the world. But for today, I want us to pull that camera lens back very wide, way out, Because I want us to look at what was happening historically in the world surrounding the early church, those early Christians. Because I think by doing that, we will begin to see some application for how we ought to respond to some of the things going on historically in our world as well. So I want to give you a little bit of this historical background. Stick with me for these next couple of minutes. It's pretty fascinating stuff, what was happening in the world at the very same time that the book of Acts was written and describing what the early church looked like. As you know, the Roman Empire was at the height of its power as the early church was being born. They had the emperor Nero, who famously hated Christians more locally to the Jerusalem church, which is where this story takes place. There were a couple of local regents who worked under the empire, emperor. One of them, his name was Pliny. And we actually have a lot of historical record about Pliny because he had a, basically like a 
a, a, a letter-writing buddy in Trajan, who was another regent under the emperor. They would write letters back and forth to each other to try to figure out how to govern these people. And one of the subjects that Pliny and Trajan talked about was how to deal with these Christ followers. There was this movement going on in their midst, and they wrote letters back and forth. What do we do about these people? You can find this in the historical record. You should see pictures of Pliny and Trajan on your screen. And in one famous letter that Pliny wrote to Trajan, he described what he found in this group of people who were following Christ. I'm just going to point out a couple of sentences from this letter between Pliny and Trajan. He says, they, these early church-going Christians, these Christ followers, they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God. Now remember, Pliny is a totally secular person. He's not a Christian at all. But his people have stumbled upon this group of Christians, and they're trying to describe what they do. They meet on a fixed day. We know that as the Sabbath. It's Sunday. They meet to do what? To sing to Jesus Christ as if he's a God. You and I know that Jesus Christ is in the Godhead, but to Pliny, this was a novel idea. He goes on from there to describe the fact that these Christ followers committed themselves to not commit adultery and to not steal. We know this as the Ten Commandments. And in another sentence, it says, after that first assembly in the morning, they would assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. Now, why would Pliny write that to Trajan? Well, there was a rumor going around that these early Christians were actually cannibals. Because when they were asked by the non-Christians, you know, what are you doing in there in that living room? They would say things like, well, we're eating the body and blood of Jesus. And to the non-Christians, they thought, that sounds like cannibalism. So there were these rumors going around, but Pliny reports to Trajan, don't worry, they were just eating innocent food. And it goes on from there. You can Google this and find more of this letter between Pliny and Trajan. It's fascinating stuff. And in many ways, it really confirms what it says right here in the Bible in the book of Acts about some of the things that the early church was doing. But I bring it up to us this morning to remind us that the early church did not enjoy the religious freedoms that you and I enjoy now. Their governing authorities didn't know what to do with them at first. And you see in some of the later letters, and we know from history that ultimately these regents and these emperors ended up just killing as many Christians as they could. They thought they were insurrectionists, starting a new political movement. So many early Christians were killed. So that's what was going on geopolitically around this famous text of Acts 2.42. What was happening in the religious scene? Well, it was really bad there too. This text takes place in Jerusalem. And we know from history as well that in Jerusalem, after Jesus was there after he died and rose again and ascended back to heaven. Over the next couple of decades, things got really bad with the temple. In fact, in 70 AD, the Romans were finally so fed up with the Jewish people who were trying to control that territory that the Romans came in and just completely destroyed the temple. In fact, you can see on your screen right now a historical record of this event. This is called the Arch of Titus. It's still there in Rome to this day. And it's celebrating these Roman soldiers carrying off the items from the temple. Can you imagine being a God-fearing Jew in Jerusalem? 
and seeing those precious artifacts of the temple, these symbols of God's presence with man being carted off in victory. That's what was happening in Jerusalem by 70 AD in the, in the decade leading up to 70. Tensions were escalating more and more every year. In fact, famously, there's something that's called the Jerusalem riots of the year 66. You can Google this too. It's fascinating stuff. The Jewish people and the Roman people were out in the streets rioting, trying to gain control of the city of Jerusalem and the temple and the religious goings-on of that time. So I want us to think about this historical, this geopolitical, and this religious context um, that was happening while this early church was being born. Can you picture all of that? Government authorities who didn't know what to do with Christians and ultimately just tried to kill them off. Religious freedoms being completely taken away, in fact, utterly destroyed. The temple being turned over. Not a stone was not turned over in its destruction. That's the historical and religious backdrop of what's happening in Acts 2.42. Now that we know that, now that we have that backdrop in our minds, let me read for you Acts 2, verse 42, once again. Listen to it in that context. And they, the early Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and prayers. They devoted themselves. That word devoted in the Greek is actually two words put together. One word is steadfast, and the other word is toward. They were devoted. They were steadfast toward. And it's really describing a posture of the heart, the passion that Mr. Vanderlaan displayed for me in high school Bible class. He was steadfast toward. He was passionate about. He was wholeheartedly zealous about the word of God. And in a similar way, the early church were unwavering. They were steadfast toward. They were devoted to what? To the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The apostles' teaching. Who were the apostles? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the apostle Paul. And they devoted themselves. They had unwavering, wholehearted, passionate zeal to what the apostles had taught. How cool is it that we actually have access to the apostles' teaching to this day? The very same things that they were zealous about, that they were wholeheartedly, unwaveringly devoted to, we also can devote ourselves to. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Now, fellowship is really hard for us right now. But praise God for some technological avenues that we can connect with one another. We can have fellowship even over a Zoom call. And Lord, haste the day when we can have fellowship once again together in this room and in living rooms, and in other places where we can be in physical contact with each other. Soon, brothers and sisters, soon. And to the breaking of the bread. The breaking of the bread. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every single worship service at Stanwich Church. The breaking of the bread. It's not just talking about sharing a meal together. It's talking about remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. When we hold up the bread and are reminded of his body being broken. When we pour the cup and remember his blood being spilled. 
for the redemption of humanity. They devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. Stanwich Church, one thing I am so proud of in you is how devoted we all are to praying for each other. I'm convinced that the success of this church for nearly 300 years has ridden the back of prayer. We devote ourselves to prayer as a church. So in that historical backdrop of all that was going on geopolitically with corrupt power structures and the temple being toppled and the riots that led up to that, the early church was devoted. They were unwaveringly passionate about, they were steadfast towards the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and praying. Now consider this with me, guys. Acts 2.42 could have described anything that was going on. It could have said, They devoted themselves to the riots in Jerusalem and making sure their side won. Could have said that. They could have done that. No. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, Bible study, basically, to fellowship, to breaking of the bread, and to prayers. On the other hand, it could have said they devoted themselves to replacing Pliny and Trajan and Nero with godly leaders. They could have taken up a political cause to try to change the power structures. They didn't do that either. They stayed on mission by devoting themselves, by being steadfast toward, by being passionate about, by being zealous about these very simple things. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. I imagine for these early Christians in Jerusalem, their hearts would have been tempted on a daily basis to go join those riots or to go hand out pamphlets for political persuasion or any other number of ways that their hearts could have been turned to be steadfast towards something else other than the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread. And the prayers. That little movement, that little group of Christians devoting themselves to those simple things ended up changing the whole world. But it started with their hearts being in the right place, their hearts being devoted, being steadfast towards these simple things. Now we might look at this and ask so is it saying that Christians shouldn't be involved in these massive cultural engagements? that swirl around us in the historical context that we are in? Should we just stay to ourselves and devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread and prayers? Well, no. It's that our cultural engagement ends up flowing out of this first heart devotion. In verses 44 and 45, we begin to see a picture of that. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So this is the very beginning of the church's cultural engagement. First, inside the church, they were sharing their possessions with one another. I believe that one of the things they were reading in the apostles' teaching was the absolute, profound, immeasurable generosity of God. And in light of God's generosity, they looked around at each other and thought, well, why would I be stingy with my fellow Christ followers? I'm going to share whatever I have in the same way that God shared what he had with me, namely his life. 
and they began distributing proceeds and they began even reaching outside the community of the church and blessing those in need around them in their community. In fact, we know from history that the Christians began doing this on such a massive scale. The generosity of the early church is quite profound. I'll give you an example. In Rome in the first century, in the Roman Empire, it was socially acceptable to leave an unwanted baby out for exposure. Meaning, just if you had a girl and you wanted to have a boy, if there was some kind of defect with the child, if there was any reason you didn't want your baby after it was born, you could just leave it out to the elements and let the child die. It's horrible to imagine. But these Christians who were devoted, who were steadfast toward the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread and praying, they looked at these little babies, helpless, and they said, you know, somebody ought to scoop up those babies and adopt them. And their early Christians began doing this. It's one of the reasons the early church grew as much as it did is because these Christian families were taking up these unwanted babies, adopting them into their own households and raising them up as children of God. Why would they be led to do such a thing? Because they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. There's a theme in the apostles' teaching in the New Testament of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And the theme is adoption. That he has adopted us as sons. That because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that he gave, we get to be brought into the family of God. Jesus, the firstborn son of God, the one who deserves all the inheritance and all the blessing of the Father. He laid down his life to bring us in as adopted children of the Father so that we can have all the benefits of the firstborn son and not what we deserve because of our sin, but the blessing that he deserved as the firstborn son. It's a common theme in the New Testament. The early Christians would have read about this in the apostles' teaching. And when they looked out at the Roman Empire and they saw these little children who were left out to die, they said, God has adopted us into his family. Let's adopt these children into our family. And you see, their hearts were steadfast toward, they were zealous about the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and praying. And that led them to proper cultural engagement, not to go riot in the streets or try to change the political power structures of the day. No, they were on the ground, roll up the sleeves, do the hard work of cultural engagement and loving their neighbor as they love themselves. And that little group of people, these Christ followers, they didn't just stay in their living rooms and sing, sing songs and hymns and break bread and go about the rest of their day. They engaged with the world around them and ultimately changed the whole world. It's why you and I are talking today. There are billions of Christ followers to this day that are a continuation of the same movement that began here in Acts 2, verse 42. And what I began by saying, I believe is an invitation for all of us to ask the Holy Spirit right now. To say, Holy Spirit, will you reveal in me, will you reveal in my heart, any avenues that I have allowed my heart to become steadfast toward, to become devoted to, that aren't on this list. The Apostles' Creed, the fellowship, 
the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Lord, has my heart gone astray? Have I become devoted to, have I allowed zealous passion to lead me into engagements that aren't ultimately from you and ultimately just lead to division in our land? If so, Holy Spirit, just redirect me. Redirect us, Holy Spirit. Center us again on these simple things. Bring us back to Bible study. Bring us back to studying the Word on a daily basis. Bring us back to fellowship, whether that's temporarily electronic and in the future back in person. Bring us back to the Lord's table, the breaking of the bread, where we are reminded, Lord Jesus, of your unwavering passion that led you ultimately to the cross, ultimately to a place where you would lay down your life, have your body broken and your blood spilled so that you could adopt us all into your household. And lead us, Holy Spirit, back to prayer. If any of us have stopped praying or have prayed less over the last year, bring us back to that simple prayer. Maybe the prayer for some of us watching right now is just simply, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Lord, help us. Lord, redirect me. Rekindle that love. Rekindle that passion. Rekindle that devotion to you, to your word, to the cross, and to the blessing and benefit of the world around us. Lead us, O oh God. Amen.